James's letter, uh, it's, it's really setting up an ethic for Christian people. He assumes that he's writing to Christian people. To, he, in, in, in a sense, he assumes the gospel. Like He doesn't lay out for us, like Paul does over and over in his letters, he doesn't lay out for us a gospel presentation that, that Jesus, you're sinners, Jesus has died for your sin, and as a result now you have this new life in Christ. Uh, he doesn't he doesn't do that. He really starts just by laying it out. I'm writing to Christian people. And as that is his kind of foundation, he then just begins to teach them how to live. He's giving them an, an ethic by which to live, a how-to list, if you will, what it looks like to, to live the Christian life. He's not telling people how to become Christians. He's teaching people how to live because they're already Christians, this faith in Christ, this identity, uh, this identifying Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior turns them from the rest of the world and turns them back toward God. And because of that, it's going to, it's going to imply and end up bringing on a new practice and rhythm of life. And so no longer are we walking as we used to or, or living as we used to. We're, we're, we're turned from that and now we're headed towards God. Well, that's going to look radically different than the rest of the world who rejects and rebels against God. And so James is giving us some perspective, some view of what that looks like. Now, if you're here today and you're not Christian, don't, don't worry. There is something for you as well. You'll at least hear the, the, the reality of what a Christian life should look like. And, and if you are to come to faith, what it would be like uh, or what you're expected to do because of that. But all the way through, even though he assumes the gospel, he also shows us contrasting pictures. The hope we have because of Christ and the reality of the hopelessness of being outside of Christ. So that, that's as present here in this passage as it has been previously. And so you'll be able to see that today. So we're going to read the verses and then we'll pray and then we'll just kind of we'll just jump in. Here it is, James chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. We'll read through verse 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Oh, Father, <clears throat> we're grateful for your word. Even where it confronts us and brings conviction, we have reason to be grateful that it would correct us. So I know that as this passage has dealt with me, and as I, as, as I have studied and learned from this passage that's happened in me, I suspect it will happen in your people today. And I pray that we would see the truth, respond to the truth, believe it, and then walk in it. 
Spirit, do your work through this word. It's these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. James opened his letter with a call for Christians to count it all joy, right? So when we face trials of various kinds, and it's not, it, he, he does, he's very general in the way he describes that. When we face trials of various kinds, we don't have the, we're, we're supposed to count it all joy. That's not, everyone faces trials, but Christians have a unique call to count it all joy because we know that God is doing something through them. If we don't have the understanding or the wisdom, if you will, to be able to look at the trials that we face and count it all joy, James says, ask for it. Ask in faith and God will give it to you. And then he, he brings, he steps from that and, and, and says, by the way, as, as you're walking through this, so, so that as, you, as this finds application in your life, just consider being poor and rich. Don't find your identity. Don't look at your success or your or your identity, or your position in life as a result of your financial position, your poverty, or your wealth, but see yourself in Christ. That's of greater value than anything that this world would have to offer. And so poverty, while it is definitely a trial for people, count it all joy that God hasn't given you more money that you depend upon Him, but that He's exalted you in Christ. And if he's given you the trial of having too much money, which if you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, I presented to you that I think that's all of us in America. Um, You may not agree with me, and that's okay. I don't mind if you're wrong. It doesn't bother me any. The reality is, by and large, in contrast with the rest of the world, we are a very affluent people blinded by our own wealth. And we're only poor in contrast to other Americans. We're, We're not really poor. There's not anyone in here that's struggling getting food or even living in abundance. It's just the reality of it. But he calls us in that trial of wealth, the weight that wealth puts on us and begins to make us the self-sufficient and self-dependent and, and less trusting in God. Don't count that for anything, but see your humility as unworthy before God and count it all joy. That's the idea. That's what he's been presenting to us. Then in verse 12, he kind of sums this idea up with, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And he restates in verse 12 the same point he made in verses 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness has its full effect, and you may be, that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking in Nothing. There's a couple of distinctions, a couple of differences, but essentially the point is the same. We aren't celebrating the trial. We aren't talking about this life and, and the difficulties in some whimsical fashion as if, they're, as if they're nothing. We're being honest about the reality of the difficulties, of, of even the tragedies that we endure. But he is not, he's no longer commanding us to us. He is describing us this way. We are blessed. Because it's not the trial that defines us, but the reality that we have a crown of life coming to us because God has promised it to those who love Him. You see, we're looking at what's after the trial. We're looking at what's beyond the trial. We are happy. We are fortunate, if you will. It's a radically different perspective. Radically different view than what the world would have. The world would look at us and they would say, well, what in the world are you celebrating for? You're suffering, you're struggling, you're dealing with tragedy. How is it that you can be joyful? How is it that you can know peace? Because I know there's a day coming. 
having endured the trial, that I will be complete, perfect, lacking in nothing, that I will receive the crown of life, that I will step into eternal life and all this, all these light and momentary afflictions will fade. See, we're looking ahead. We're looking past the trial to what the trial is doing and how it's being used by God in our life. And so we can see that verse 12 certainly sums up the, the teaching that comes from these first 12 verses. It kind of gives us this bookend perspective. And then in verse 13, it seems that James takes a turn. He goes from speaking of the trials of life and blessed is the man who remains steadfast under those trials. Count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds, if you will. And he turns and he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Now, at first glance, it seems like he has got a whole new subject, a whole new, a, a whole new topic to deal with, that he's got this whole new perspective. But what you can't see in the English translation is that this group of words that, that is being translated between trials and tempted and temptation they're really all a part of the same family. You see, it seems to me, it seems, and not just to me, I mean, I didn't come to this all by myself, and I, I finally figured it out. 2,000 years, people have gotten it wrong, and I finally got it. It seems to be the teaching, the, the historical understanding of this is that James is really dealing with the same topic from a different perspective. See, it seems that he understands that sometimes when we're facing trials, they don't actually produce spiritual maturity. Some people, when facing trials, actually turn away from God rather than depending on him more. Maybe you've known someone like this. Someone who, when the going got tough, decided they were going to get going to do their own thing. I've wrestled with whether to share this or even how much of this to share uh, from the pulpit. Many of you know my story. I have lived a horrific life um, for, uh, let's see, I'm 47. Maybe it's not most of it now. I'd have to do the math. I'm not going to do that now. (laughs) There was a point in my life. that the bottom seemed to fall out. I don't know where rock bottom could have been. If I wasn't at it, I'm scared to think what it would have, what could, what more could have happened. But when it all started to come undone, I was a believer of about five years who had never been discipled. I had sat in churches and I had listened to preachers And I had sung the songs, but I was an infant in my faith. And when the bottom fell out, I didn't immediately run to the Lord. I actually blamed him. You see, the reality is I had been dealing with hardship all of my life. And much of it revolving things around church. When I was a kid, my dad was a pastor and he left the family and left the church. The next time I saw him, 
you would have never known he'd ever been a pastor. I didn't fully realize it then, but at that point, I blamed it all on God. My whole family ran, except for my mom. I don't know if she's here this morning. Oh, she's in, okay, good. I'm just kidding. This is all true. You can verify it with her. My mom struggled, but she remained faithful. So as an adult, even as an infant Christian, when the bottom falls out again, it feels just like I felt when I was a child. I blamed the Lord and I tried to run from him. If this is what you're about, these are thoughts that I thought. If this is what you're about, I'm not certain that I want anything to do with you. And I'm grateful that the Lord's bigger than me. I'm grateful that there's nowhere I can go. Even as I ran into the darkness, darkness was light to him. Psalm 139 eventually became very precious to me because David spoke of running and seeking to find a place that was away from God and there's no place that exists. Anecdotally, I found that to be true. For about a year and a half, I sought to do everything I could to run. But God was faithful. He continued to put people in my path. Read the word. Get in the word. He never forsook me. You see, immediately in my, in my immaturity and in my infancy, this trial wasn't turning me to spiritual maturity. It caused me to point a finger at God and implicate him in my own problem as if he had done something wrong. You see, I think James knows that this is going to happen. I think he knows that when trials come, some of us will look at them and say, God, you made me do this when we don't respond rightly to them. But he confronts this. James confronts this and tells us that this has no place in the church. So I don't know where you're at today. I don't know where you've been. But Christian. We must believe and speak the truth. God tests his people to prove and strengthen their faith, but he does not entice them toward evil. He is not to blame. He is not responsible. He has not failed. He has not forgotten us. He has not faithless toward us. He has not forsaken us. We must understand the difference. God does bring trials into our lives. He tries us. He tests us, proving our faith and strengthening our faith. Yes, but God does not tempt us to sin. He tests us, yes, but God does not entice us to evil. Absolutely not. James makes this point. That's what this passage is pushing towards. That's what this passage is presenting. That is 
And he does it playing out these contrasting and complementary images. As, as an example of the contrasting images, he contrasts the nature of man, our desires and where they lead when left unchecked, and the nature of God and how it leads to his work. There's a sharp contrast. But a complementary picture is God's good work being the very direct result, the complementary piece of God's good nature. So so we're going to work through it looking at these pairs, uh, if you will. We're going to look at five pairs of of contrasting and complementary perspectives to, to understand exactly what's happening here. Because brothers and sisters, Christian brother, Christian sister, we must believe this truth. We must speak this truth. God will test you and he will try you, but he would never entice you toward evil. He is not to blame. For our faulty responses. So we're going to start the first pair that we're going to to look at is two words to consider. Two words to consider. In in one of the commentaries I'm reading from Dan Doriani. This is the Reformed Expository Commentary. It's it's a good one. I I appreciate uh, Dr. Doriani's perspectives. He writes this, and he's much more studied and uh, much more of a Greek scholar than I will ever be. So so I thought I would depend on him more than just try to convince you of this myself. It's not on the screen, but let me just read it to you. Listen and just let me read it to you. In Greek, the same noun, parasimos, can mean a test, a trial, or a temptation. So, So the noun, parasimos, can be translated test trial, or temptation. Okay, three words. And we're already seeing that we're using two of those in this text. And the cognate verb, the, the, the related verb, parazo, can mean test, try, or tempt. The context determines what the author has in mind, a test that lets people prove themselves, or a temptation that leads them to sin. In James 1.12, the word means test. In verse 13, it means tempt. So just like it happens in English, the same word can be interpreted with two different meanings, right? I don't know why I didn't do this. I guess because I've not felt well this week. I should have had a word to give you that example, but I don't, you speak English, you should be able to figure out one on your own. Just because you, you say a word and it, it requires context to understand what meaning you're applying to that word. <clears throat> it's just the, it's the reality of language. In this perspective, the two words that I want us to consider are trials first. These are external circumstances that test or prove our faith. Now, that's what James has been dealing with all along up until verse, uh, up through verse 12. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. When you have circumstances, difficulties, various kinds of, 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 of things that come your way, decisions to make, challenges that you face, because they strengthen your faith when you respond to them rightly. God has a purpose in them. He has, has intention for them. God does test his People. This is biblical. Genesis 22, 1 through 2, God tests Abraham. Again, I don't think these verses are on the screen. Let me read them to you. You, God God, God had been working with Abraham for some time by this point. He says in chapter 22, verse 1 through 2, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, And he said, Here I am. 
He said, God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on the one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. God tested Abraham. He didn't just test Abraham, he tested the Israelites. In Deuteronomy 8, 2, this isn't the only verse that speaks of his, him testing the Israelites. He tested them with manna from heaven. They, 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 they would, uh, were to go out every day and take enough manna for the day. Except on Friday, just before the Sabbath, they were supposed to go out and, and then gather enough for both Friday and Saturday, or the Sabbath. And that was, uh, God says in Exodus, it was a test to see if they would obey him. He was, he was testing them. Deuteronomy 8, 2 refers to a test this way. He says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Well, Abraham passed the test. He passed the test in the trials he faced. Abraham responded rightly to God. He, he did exactly what God told him to do. If you know the story of Israel, if you have followed their history at all through the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you'll know that they didn't pass the test so much. Over and over, they failed the test. In fact, the test of the manna, right? So if they were going to go out and, and not trust God that he was going to provide for them enough on Friday so that they'd have food on Saturday, or even if they were going to take more than they needed during the week and try to store it up, the worms would come in and eat it. So they were supposed to go out on Friday and, and take enough for Saturday as well. But if they, when they went and did that, the worms wouldn't come in and eat it. He protected them, tested them with that reality. Would they obey him? That's not the only place that they faced a test, is it? I mean, you just consider what it was. They had been led out of Egypt by his power alone. A pillar of smoke by night, cloud during the day. A pillar of smoke in the day and a pillar of fire at night, sorry. They come to the, to the Red Sea and they see the Egyptian army behind them. They're freaking out. You know, we've been let out here to die. Moses steps out in the sea, puts, puts the staff out over the sea and the sea splits on either side. They walk through on dry ground and then when the last person leaves the sea, the Egyptians are crushed in the sea. stand before him as he shows himself on a mountain and they see his power as they enter into covenant with him. They see his might. It's so they're afraid. In fact, they tell Moses at one point, we don't want to talk to him. You talk to him for us because we're so afraid. They walk through the wilderness to the point where he is going to lead them into the promised land and they send spies across to look and see what's going on across the river. And they come back, and because of their report, they are afraid. They're more afraid of the people on the other side of that river than they are of the God who sat on top of that mountain and spoke with power and might. Over and over and over, the Israelites failed these tests. It should be no surprise to us that, that James understands that not all of the trials will lead to spiritual maturity. For many people, they'll see these trials and they'll fail them over and over and over. 
The other perspective, the other word that we need to consider, though, is not just tests and trials or trials that, that test us. It's temptation. There is a distinction. There is a distinction that needs to be made. Temptation is an enticement towards evil. It's a drawing us towards things that dishonor God. God does test us, but he never entices us to do something that is evil. James' point in this passage is is enticement toward evil is the result of our fallen desires, not God's trials. In fact, if you look at it, look look there back in the passage at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person, and here's the process, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You know what that means? Not only can we not blame God for our evil activity and the temptations we face, we can't even, we, we, we can't even blame the devil. We can't even say the devil made me do it. He makes it our issue. He puts it front and center on us. Your desire is the issue. Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. I mean, just consider the, consider the picture of Jesus. Matthew tells us that Jesus was led by the Spirit after his baptism. So he's baptized. The Spirit comes down on him like a dove. The spot, Father speaks from heaven. This is my Father, whom I'm well pleased And immediately it tells us that he was led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Now we know this is a test as much as it is temptation. It's a test because the Spirit leads him there. But the Spirit's not about to entice him to evil. The Spirit is leading them there that he would do what Adam didn't. What Adam didn't do in the garden, Jesus is going to do in the wilderness. And he is not going to succumb to the deceit of the devil and the desire of anything other than God's glory. You see, the reality is that Jesus stands there being tested or being tempted by the devil. He over and over again responds with God's word and responds from God's perspective with God's glory and God's goodness as the reason for his response. You see, Jesus was truly tempted because Satan was seriously seeking to entice him, but he never had any desire. He had never had any leaning. That's a little bit different than you and I, isn't it? Our problem is that we desire a lot of things that just automatically dishonor God. There's already sin. Just because the object of the desire is sinful. But we also take a lot of good things, a lot of noble things, and desire them in ways that dishonor God. Ah. How about money? Is it wrong to desire money? Is it wrong to have a desire to have some money to live on? I mean, 
Is, is money an evil thing? Is No. It's the love of money. That's the root of all kind of evil. It's a desire that's too great for money. A desire for money more than a desire for the abundance that God has given us. So don't misunderstand. You were created to live in abundance. In fact, there's promises here of abundance, of blessedness, of crowns of life, of all the good things that God has done and promised us. But a desire for money instead? How about something a little little closer to the line, maybe? I want to be careful. I want to be sensitive because of the audience we have. But what about sex? Is it wrong to desire sex? No. In fact, God made it part of the created order, the creation process. Be fruitful. Multiply. He built this in. These, these desires are often, they're good, right, good desires within the right context. But what have we done? Our desires twisted it. We've denied that he's got a design for it. We've denied that he's got intention for it. We've designed, denied that he's got a context for it. We've desired it more than we've desired him. Even in the things like the prosperity gospel, we can even go back to these verses in the context, verses 9 through 11, where he's speaking of man's wealth. If we're not careful, we can desire the gifts that God gives us more than we can desire the giver of the gifts. Calvin was the one that said it, that our hearts are idol factories. We're constantly producing these things that we love more and we desire more. The reason we're tempted is not because of God's trials. The reason that we're enticed towards sin is because we have desires for things more than we desire God. Because we love the creation more than we love God. James says, don't Blame him. Take responsibility for your fallen desire that you might walk in repentance. You see, temptation is not God's fault. Yes, he tests us, but he never tempts us. He never entices us to do evil. Our desire is responsible for that. So we have these two words. Now we need to look at two commands that he gives us. Two complementary commands, if you will. The first says, do not, do not say God tempts anyone. You see that in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Do not say God tempts anyone. Do not say that. Don't let anyone else say it. Don't let any of your brothers and sisters in Christ say it. The trials that come to us, every one of them, everyone has some opportunity to tempt us. I told you my story. I was an infinite in the faith. And that trial that God brought my way certainly led me, and my desire led me into temptation. My, my desire took hold of that and it ran with it. And I don't desire difficulty. I don't desire hardship. I don't desire to suffer in this way. I'm going to go find my own way. I'm going to go find my own thing. 
Douglas Moo, writing in his commentary, says, Every trial, every external difficulty carries with it a temptation, an inner enticement to sin. God may bring or allow trials, but he is not, James insists, the author of temptation. That is our desire. James doesn't even allow us room to speak of it. He doesn't even want us to mention it. Cannot blame or implicate God in our failure in any way. And maybe one of the most famous examples of this is Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Chapter 2 ends, they're naked and without shame. They have a relationship with God and each other that none of us have ever fully experienced with anyone else or with God himself. What we have to look forward to is better than the garden, I can guarantee. But to this point, that's the closest we have ever gotten. They eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God had told them not to eat. And God confronts them. And you remember how Adam reacts? Remember the very first answer to God's, who told you you were naked? Adam says, did you eat the fruit? Adam says, this woman that you put with me. This woman that you gave me. Give me the fruit. So God looks, says, Eve, why did you do this? The serpent, the serpent did this. The devil made me do it. It's interesting because God brings a curse and he pronounces curse on all three of them. So we see there is some measure of responsibility across the board. There is some measure of responsibility he's going to carry out across the board. But did you notice in Adam's words, let me just read them to you. Genesis 3.12, the man said, the woman whom you gave me to be, to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. It's not just the woman he's blaming. It's God. You know why it's so risky for us to be saying, walking around saying that God has tempted us, enticed us toward evil, that in some way he's responsible for our failings? You know why that's so risky? Why James stands so desperately, so purposefully opposed to it? Because we join Adam in blaming him for our sin. I just use my own experience. The bottom falls out. I'm at, I'm, I mean, I fall to what I believe is right. Bottom it scares me to think what it might have been. As I'm falling, I am throwing a fit. And the whole time, I'm pointing my finger at God and said, you didn't do the right thing. You didn't give me what I deserve. You didn't fulfill my plan. You didn't act the way I told you to. You have made me this way. Brothers and sisters, for us to stand in the presence of a holy God and implicate him in some way in our temptation is to call him evil. Is to blame him for our failure. Is to determine that we are no longer responsible. He is. James says, do not let this happen. It can't be. 
cannot be that we would say such a thing. Do not say that God tempts you and do not be deceived. As verse 16, immediately following how temptation has its way and leads us into death, destruction. He, he tells us, do not be deceived. Don't believe the lies that you tell yourself or that, you, that, that others tell you. Your problem with temptation is not because of God. It is because of you. This is your issue. Do not believe the lie that there is some better way, that there is some better thing. Do not believe the lie that God could have given you some better outcome, some better circumstance, or some better process by which to live. Do not believe the lie. That God entices you to respond to Him in ways that reject Him. The problem is ours. The problem is our sinful desires. Desiring things that are naturally sinful before God. And desiring things more than we desire God. I don't remember where I first came across it. I think, I'm certain, almost certain it came from Augustine. I, I don't remember where I first heard it. Uh, pretty soon it'll just be my idea because I, I can't remember the reference and I don't want to go look for it anymore. But I'm pretty sure it was Augustine that talked about our sin issues as love that was in the wrong priority. We love things in the wrong order. We love ourselves and we love the creation more than we love God. We desire ourselves to have joy, satisfaction, and, and, and acceptance and approval from others more than we desire it from God, we will find it anywhere we can get it. We, 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 we love ourselves more than we love God. We love the creation, the things that God's created more than we love ourselves. And at the heart of it all is us. So don't be, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. God is not to blame. God is not responsible. We are. And how does he prove this? That's a big claim, right? Like, you're in my face. You're up in my business. You're making me responsible for something I don't really feel like being responsible for. I'd really much rather someone else be responsible. This, how does he found this argument? What does he build this argument on? Well, here's two proofs that you need to study. God's good nature. And God's good mission. Now, let me just show you these two ideas first in verse 13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. God cannot be tempted with evil. It is against his nature. He has a nature. He is completely holy. He cannot be enticed towards evil. And he himself tempts no one. So he has his nature, his good nature that cannot be tempted. Jesus presented that. He proved it in the flesh. But this is true of God, the Trinitarian God. But not only is his nature good, so is his mission. He tempts no one. He doesn't entice anyone towards evil. He doesn't doesn't bring anyone that direction. He doesn't lead anyone that way. We see his good nature and his good mission as the foundation of James' reasoning before he shows us our nature 
He shows us God's nature. Before he shows us what we do with temptation, he shows us what God does instead of temptation. And then he returns to the idea in verses 18 through 16. My beloved brothers, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. The things that come down from him are good and they're perfect. They're not lacking. There's not a better option. There's not a better opportunity. They are good. They are perfect. They are not lacking anything. There's not something missing from them. Whether it's a trial or a blessing. Whether it's a difficulty or some relief and some uh, uh, object of mercy. In either case, these are good and perfect gifts. And they come from God, that's his work. It's his mission to give his people good and perfect gifts. Jesus is talking about this as he, as he spoke about prayer. He's like, well, if you know how to do it, if you know how to give good gifts, how much more your father in heaven, how much more does he know how to give good gifts? As, as parents, we, we don't give our kids everything they want and we often give them things they don't want. How many of us fight around the table about getting our kids to eat broccoli or green beans? Anything green for that matter. Count yourself blessed if you've got a kid that likes vegetables. But I still bet they'd prefer to have a cookie. We don't give them everything they want. But because we love them, we give them the things that they need. We discipline them when they go wrong. We put challenges in front of them because we know it'll grow them up. I don't do that. You don't teach your kids how to read, write, and learn math? Yes. You don't expect your child to work hard in school? Yes. Well, if you count yourself a good parent, how much more is a good God who gives his children even trials to deal with? Let's not challenge that. His nature is good. His mission is good. We see his nature again immediately following this. Every good gift comes down from it's perfect and, and it's not lacking anything. The father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This, this God who James is saying is good now has never changed. He's never shifted. He's never slightly gone bad. He's never, he's never crept that direction at all. He, will all he, he is good today. He, will, he has always been good. And he will always be good. It's his very nature that, that James uses to substantiate the reality that God only does good. And, and, and then he pulls the trump card. We go back to what God is doing. He called us out. He brought us forth by the word of truth. Not by our doing, not by our power, not by our might, not by anything we deserved of his own will. Why in the world, if God is leading us out of sin and delivering us from sin, would he then turn around and entice us to sin? That doesn't make a bit of sense. God is good His nature is good. He is the very definition of good. And thereby, his work is good. Everything he does is good. 
We can't blame God. We have to stand here recognizing that God tests us through trials, but he never tempts us to do evil. Let's just play it out a little bit. Has there ever been a moment? Has there ever been a time in which you faced some trial that you thought God made a mistake? This is just too great for me, God. I don't deserve this, God. Your desire for an easy life has given given way to temptation to begin to say to him, you did something bad. The problem is, in doing so, you implicate his work as evil. You implicate his nature as evil. Why would you even want to be saved? to live in eternity with this God who's not good. Don't be deceived. Don't ever say that God has tempted you. There's two other responses that James gives us. Two other responses, I think, that come out of those commands. He stated them in the negative. I would say let's apply two responses to apply. I would, I would state them in the, ne- in the positive. Don't just... Don't just, don't be deceived. Believe the truth. Believe the truth. God brought us to life through the word of truth. That's what James tells us. Keep believing it. Keep trusting it. Study him. Get to know the God who saved you. Get Grow up in your understanding of the scripture that you might know him more fully. I guarantee you, you don't know him as well as you could. I promise you that. Oh, but I think I know him pretty good. I think you can know him better. He's an infinite God who you will never fully be able to fathom. There's more for you to get to know. In eternity, as we learn more of him and have greater insight and are not separated by the dim glass that now divides us in heaven, even then we will be learning of him. Hearing the stories of his great grace and seeing his holy righteousness presented before us. Learning at every turn of this eternal and infinite God who's shown himself in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That might even be a good place to start. How he saves you. I was just talking about this in the equip classes. There's a reality that most of the church focuses in on one small piece of God's saving work. That moment when you're called to believe. You hear the gospel presentation. You are a sinner. You have uh, uh, Jesus died in your place for your sins. You must believe in him and repent of your sin in order to be saved. And that's what we focus on that moment of belief. And the Bible gives us a picture of God's salvation that stretches back from before the foundation of the world and finds its finality when the world is made new. 
That is a much bigger picture of God's salvation than what we often think about. I guarantee you there's more for you to know. Study him and study his work and you will see him proven true over and over and over. His nature is good and his mission is good. Believe the truth that your desires are not as pure as you think they are. I don't like this any more than you do. Just because I want it doesn't mean I should have it. Just because it entices me. And I want to highlight this. I, want to, I, want, I really want you to see how desperately the truth is important in this. In verse 13, I want you to go back. I want you to look at 13 and see how it is. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 14, how it is that, that, that this temptation does its work. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. You know what a lure is? This, this is the word in the Greek too. Right? I, I'm not making this up. It's bait. It's something that appears to be what it's not. Just like when fishermen go out with a lure and they drop that in and it looks like food to the fish. Oh, man, and the fish is hungry and it's enticed by the shimmery. Ooh, it looks so good. Until they take a bite. Proverbs 5 gives us a picture of the, of the adulterous woman. <laughs> and the father tells the son, do not go anywhere near her house because she will be so alluring. Don't even walk down the path in front of her house. Have no nothing to do with her. Because when you get her, you will find that she is full of death. Just like when the fish grabs hold of that lure that's floating there in the water that's shimmering with the light. It's death. It's all built on a lie. And your desire, your natural desire is enticed by the lie. You know, Adam and Eve, as they stood in the garden, they didn't willfully, purposely choose an evil thing. You know what they did? They willfully, purposely chose to believe a lie. Oh, no, 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 no. God said you would die? No, no. You, you won't die. You'll become like God. And so was it even an evil thing that they were doing? Absolutely, yes. In 100%, it was evil that they were doing. But they believed it was a good thing to go for. When Eve saw that the food was good to eat and to bring wisdom. Her mind was changed, right? She believed a lie. She, before she was like, I don't even, I'm not even supposed to touch it. You go back and read the record. I'm not even supposed to touch it. I'll die. I'm not even, I'm not supposed to eat it. I'm not supposed to even touch it. <clears throat> the serpent comes in and he begins to tell his lie. He fills it with enough truth that it's very believable. Oh, no, 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 no. This won't kill you. It will make you like God. You see, the serpent spun a, spun a lie. It made that fruit look good. I think in their mind, their desire 
for that fruit is not a desire for evil, but a desire for good that was built on a lie. You want to know why you need to not be deceived, why you need to know and believe the truth? Because we have an enemy who is out there spinning lies. And he is not responsible for your temptation. Your fallen desire is responsible. God will not look at him and blame him. He will hold you responsible. And when your desire gives way to sin and it gives way to death, Brothers and sisters, we need to believe the truth. Finally, secondly, we need to speak the truth. We need to be reminding each other of this regularly. All the time. Because if we don't, it's very easy to forget. It's very easy for us to begin to blame God. And last, certainly not least, let me just highlight quickly for you two promises to remember. The first is sin and death. Well, that doesn't sound very good, but it's here. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. If our lives are shaped by our temptations and our desires, and we continue to give in to them, and we do not fight hard against them, then, brothers and sisters, there is very little assurance that we will not end up anywhere but death. Please hear that warning. That is a promise. That is as certain as the fish eating the lure being pulled out of the water. It is certain. But there is an alternative. The crown of life. Blessed. Blessed. Happy. Fortunate is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test... When he has not fallen into temptation repeatedly, failing the test over and over and over again. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. At the end of our road of endurance is a crown of life. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to endure to get life, but it will definitely precede it. Which God has promised to those who love him. It's not the endurance that earns us the crown of life. We receive it because God has promised it to those who love him, whose desire is for him. And even if that's imperfect and incomplete, brothers and sisters, hear this promise. You grow in your desire. You have even greater assurance that as you endure, what you have to look forward to is not death, but life. The crown of life in his presence forever. Let me close with one last quote. It's from C.S. Lewis. I think it's fitting, and I hope it sums this up well. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Do not let your desires over these lures, enticements of this world tempt you.
You look at Christ. You believe the truth. You trust in him. And you see those tests shaping you a greater faith that gives way to steadfastness. And steadfastness having its full effect gives way to perfection. Complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray.